Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 236 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the January 2017 issue of Wired, which is the magazine's first ever fiction issue. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Maria Straczynski. She's the features editor for Wired Magazine, and has also been deputy editor of Mother Jones, editor-in-chief of Pacific Standard, and managing editor of The Atlantic. Pacific Standard won a National Magazine Award for Public Service in 2014 for a cover story that Maria edited, and in 2009, she received the Atlantic Media Company Chairman's Award for Editing Excellence. She also spent two years working at the U.S. Department of the Interior. So Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And also joining us today is Jason Kay. He's an associate editor at Wired, focusing on front-of-book stories and features. Before joining Wired, he was a freelance journalist and arts critic. So, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. I'm so surprised you got my last name right. How did you know? <laughs> I looked at your Twitter account. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is just how this special issue came about. And so, Jason, do you want to just talk about what the initial idea was in the early meetings? Sure, I, I can try. Um so Caitlin Roper was uh, a senior editor at Wired, um, and it was always sort of her pet project to do a fiction issue. She came from Paris Review, um, where she was managing editor, uh, and, and always wanted to bring some fiction flavor to Wired magazine. So her, her idea was to do a, a full issue takeover of fiction. Uh, of course, I'm speaking of her in a past tense because she left Wired to go to New York Times magazine right in the middle of the process. And up until that point, it was really entirely her, her show. Um, she kind of wanted to single-handedly uh, work on the issue because she knows a lot of agents. She knows a lot of writers um, from her days in New York at the Paris Review. Um, so I can't entirely speak to her original source of, of inspiration. I shouldn't speak for her. Um, but I can say I was in a lot of those early meetings where we were getting submissions and evaluating um, various writers and directions we wanted to go. And we kind of came up with the idea that we wanted these stories to be just a notch into the future, not crazy, you know, 500 years off. Um, but take something that's sort of familiar to our world and our readers and spin it forward just a bit and imagine a scenario where uh, the world or, or, or various communities are dealing with uh, a tech innovation that would that would fundamentally change their lives. Right. So you said that Kaylin had kind of been wanting to do this for a while. What was it about this moment that you think made it happen? Uh, gosh. Uh, well, this was certainly long before any of us thought Trump would be president, so that really had no bearing at the time, um, and that'll become relevant um, a little later, and Maria, I think, can speak to that better. But um, I think we wanted uh, we, a kind of a big, ambitious issue uh, around the holidays that people could read, you know, over over the break, um, and the idea of sitting down with, with a whole issue of fiction stories seemed to make a lot of sense. Uh, so Caitlin started planning this, I want to say, it, probably a year ago. Um, knowing that it would be uh, for the January issue uh, of 2017. So I think that was kind of the inspiration there, just to do something different, something we've never done before. Caitlin also edited our first uh, sex issue. Um, so she had this kind of big picture thinking where with, with why she wanted to do really ambitious things. Right. And so you said that she had all these connections in the literary world. And so when you came onto this project, did you have any connections to the literary world or how involved were you in written science fiction? Certainly far fewer than, than Caitlin. She knows everybody in publishing, really. Um, but I, 
I guess I brought an affinity uh, for for genre, uh, and Caitlin is a bit of a bit more of a generalist when it comes to her her literary taste. Uh, and I've been reading science fiction and fantasy since I was since I was reading it all. Um, so I, I suppose I helped pick out writers um, that maybe Caitlin had less familiarity with when it came to to, to genre. N.K. Jemisin obviously would be would be one. Um, I had, we had chosen her, uh, Jemison, that is, for our first Wired book club, uh, and that sort of turned Caitlin on to her, and then she started reading her, and we eventually ended up publishing her in the issue. And so, Maria, so what stage in the process did you get involved? Right, so um, I think the pieces were all coming in uh, in draft form right when I arrived at the magazine, and... Um, pretty soon after we learned that Caitlin was leaving. And I had actually produced all of the fiction issues at the Atlantic when I was at the Atlantic, um, with, uh, Mike Curtis, who was our longtime editor there, did all of the selection. But so Caitlin kind of leaned to me and said, you know, when we found out that she was leaving, she was, she just asked if I could help shepherd the whole thing together. And at that point, pick up, pick up the drafts and working with the editors and, and, pull it all together. And it also meant um, working really closely with the art department, which is something that was, was great fun for this issue. And, and we could talk about a little bit more. Um, as Maria, well. I, I, sorry to yeah, go ahead. interrupt, um, but I'm just curious, since I've never asked you this, the difference between editing fiction at the Atlantic and at, at Wired. Um, uh, not much, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, we could talk about the topic of editing fiction, which, um, I think makes a lot of nonfiction editors scratch their head at times. Um, but really I think is such a, is, is one of those kind of pure, pure, uh, arts in, in that you see these pieces come in and you can just kind of see where the author is trying to go. And oftentimes they really get there and you can see moments where the reader may be confused and that, uh, what you see is the rhythm of the piece hits some hiccups. And, um, and so to me, the editing of, of this kind of fiction just came down to the same thing in both places where you, you just want to make sure that the reader stays along with the writer the whole time. You know, a lot of that work is just done in like the, in the early stages of um, accepting the stories and, and choosing the right stories for the mix. I mean, all the stories I think are about 3,000 words or less. Was there a strict word limit for what people could turn in? No, not really. We wanted a couple really flash fiction-y type pieces. So Charlie Jane's piece, for instance, I think is only 800 words or something. Um, and then we had one piece that came in closer to 8,000 or something, but that was, was far too long for an issue like this. Um, so yeah, I think we, we kind of maxed down around 3,000. That's just sort of the length that made sense for the issue. But Maria, is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that does. I mean, it, it was it was really fun to see the range of lengths and that all these stories worked at their lengths. I mean, again, Jason, as Jason mentioned, we had to um, ask the authors to trim a couple of the really long ones down because there's always the moment of producing a print magazine where you only have so many pages. And we wanted to be sure we had a robust mix and that we had um, a robust variety of, of uh, places that the authors could go. Um, but we really didn't have to do a whole lot of, I mean, the authors really did it beautifully for us. Um, and, yeah, Nora. Yeah, go ahead. Nora, Nora's piece came in at around, I think, 5,000 words. Um, but I asked her up front if she could cut it down to three, uh, which she did. And I would like to think 
she and I both agree that the piece works better at the length. And with all the pieces that have to be cut, as is so often the case with, with cutting, I think it really improves the piece and you, you lose some of the extraneous bits and you can focus the themes better. So I'm really glad with the length for all the pieces and I don't think anyone uh, felt like they were losing the story that they originally wanted to tell. I, I actually think all the pieces work better at the lengths that they ran at. I mean, like Maria, did you have experience editing science fiction before or was this something new for you? Oh gosh, not at all. I mean, this is the funny thing about this, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm gonna admit, open a vein or something here, where, <laughs> that I didn't, I didn't have much experience with science fiction in the least, and it's something I now want to read a lot more of. I mean, I've read various bits and, you know, probably the classics at times in my life, um, but, but it's not the genre that I that has been my go-to, and the thing that I just found so sort of beautiful. Um, about this process was that you look at the pieces and it really does just become about, it's just, it seems like it's so much just about the reader. I mean, every, everything we edit really is at the end of the day about the reader and about the reader's understanding. But this just kind of is like this beautiful stripped down process where the author wants to get a story told that has an arc, you know, that starts somewhere and goes somewhere. Um, and all we wanted to do was help them do that in a way that stuck to their, uh, their prose and their thinking, um, and, and, and helped get the reader to where we could see the authors were going. And, and again, I think both Jason and I sound maybe a little more heavy handed than I think it was, um, in, in talking about this, like it really was what he's saying about just maybe shaping that sentence because that sentence didn't, didn't seem to flow or, um, uh, you know, there would be a moment that in a piece that just felt perhaps a little bit off the path that we were we were going on um but but in the end i guess what i'm trying to say is i had not touched science fiction barely at all and i still found it to be just the sort of same beautiful process um and i you know to be to be clear i didn't really edit fiction that much at the atlantic because my role was more of a get the pieces in from Mike Curtis, pol help polish them, help them get through our copy edit and fact checking process, which yes, we do fact check fiction. <laughs> and, um, we did here too. Uh, and, and just make sure that the pieces went out to the readers as cleanly and, and crisply as they could. I mean, are there any examples of, uh, factual mistakes that you're really glad that you caught in the fact checking process? Um, this time we did not have any, the, the things we stumbled on this time and that we talked through would be like the, um, James S.A. Corey. Those guys used real, real names to real cities that exist in the world. And, and yet sometimes the fact checkers would say, well, this real city isn't anything like the city they're describing, but the authors are using real locations. Um, so is it okay that the real location would never be this kind of place? And, it, you know, we, most of those things, we sort of just all decided that's fine. This is fiction. You know, this is fiction and fantasy. But actually, the authors at times were great about saying, you know, you're right. Let's change that to a different name of a different city or something like that. And I will add on, on N.K. Jemison's piece again, and I apologize for keep bringing it up, but it's one I'm so proud of. Um, oh, it's, Alexi it's such a great Adele piece. Are, it's so much fun. Um, our... Uh, assistant research editor, she fact-checked all of the date-time stamps on, on each of those transmissions. Um, and she said after she did that, 
They were all correct, by the way. Um, Nora hadn't made any mistakes, which isn't surprising. She's incredibly meticulous. But um, Lexi said after fact-checking all of those date and time stamps, she a whole new elements of the story came out. Uh, and she was able to piece things together that she hadn't before, uh, which is such a trademark of, of hard science fiction. Uh, this extra layer that, if you really scrutinize it, reveals kind of a deeper, fuller meaning. I, I love that detail when Lexi told me that too. I, I think, you know, every reader, if they get a chance now, should go back and look at all those incredibly detailed little date stamps that run through the Jemison piece. Um, and it, you know, that piece is so thought provoking and kind of horrifying in a, in a, in a great way when you kind of get it, when it unfolds and you see what's happening. Right. It's one of those pieces that, I mean, I've still, I've read it probably 10, 15 times by now and I'm still getting things out of it every time I read it. So I hope people, even if they don't get it the first time, sit back down and, and, and read through it again. And then maybe on their third or fourth read, look at those date times and, or look at other elements that she snuck in because there are so many little hidden bits that I feel like you really couldn't see until you've read it four or five times, which is really amazing. I mean, do you want to just say just basically what the premise of the story is? Uh, sure. This is set, probably it's our furthest into the future. Uh, the globe is suffering from overpopulation, so we have to trade with, with aliens. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's all, it's told through a series of radio transmissions from many light years away. So there are bits and pieces of these transmissions that have been garbled or lost, um, and a computer is trying to optimize, uh, those moments. Um, but you're only getting snippets of, of transcripts or, team logs or uh reports from from these trade missions uh and so it's sort of a mission gone slightly wrong and i don't want to say anything more than that because it, the, the joy in the piece and the horror as maria said is in the discovery of what exactly is going on in this mission well i mean jason you mentioned earlier that you didn't know that trump was going to be president when you initially conceived this issue were the stories did the when the authors wrote the stories did they know that or were they written before that well, I think Maria should speak to this because, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation, but I think Maria can speak more articulately. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, either of us, Jason. So, you know, this, so, right, the magazine was planned a year ago, and, and they, the folks at Wired at the time, Jason and a small team, started reaching out to authors they loved and calling, you know, calling for stories. And not, nobody had the time. I mean, we, we were in a, the thick of a terrible election, but nobody. Um, knew which way it was going to go. But interestingly enough, when you do look back to when, when we started calling for stories, we were still in the primaries. Um, Trump kept beating all of these other 16 or 18 or 300 other people um, in the Republican primary. And I think that there, there was moments along that, if you track it back, there were probably moments along there where people really were nervous of, of the Trump rise or happy, depending on which side of the aisle you fall on. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I wish I could say that some of our authors, you know, saw the Trump rise and kind of worked it into their pieces or the, you know, their pitches. Um, I could certainly reverse engineer such a, such a storyline. Um, but you know, in the end, I think we were working and polishing these pieces when we all thought Hillary was going to win. And I think it's a fair thing to say because I think even Trump thought Hillary was going to win. Um, or Clinton was going to win. So it's just been such an interesting arc. And there was, there were many weeks in there where we were looking at this package of stories and 
so many of them were grasping onto na- themes of national anxiety or, or international world anxieties um, overpopulation, like Jason mentioned, natural resource depletion, um, you know, the, the rise of technology sort of taking over our minds and our thoughts. And so when we looked at the package altogether, we got a little bit worried that, you know, this is a pretty dark view of the future if you, if you, if you take them as a whole. Um, but, you know, the, the national conversation was, was dark and scary. And it, it ended up tracking. I mean, we, we really do, Wired really wants to be able to look forward and look at where there are optimistic ideas and, and, and people championing optimistic, um, notions of the future. I mean, we didn't, you know, we had President Obama guest edit the issue because of his view that we are living in the best times and that things can only get better or, you know, have a real chance to get better. But in the end, the, those collection of pieces did really reflect a kind of national anxiety that all came true. So, you know, and, and as we were building it, as Scott says in his editor's letter, it was, it's really hard to know what the future holds right now. It was these, we were putting this together at a time when it was very hard to say, um, you know, we are going to have an optimistic future. And so the package ended up really reflecting that national psyche. And then of course, as Trump won, it felt even more on the nose because it is not an extension of what we have all been used to. It is a, you know, the, the election is a complete upending of what you know, the path, the, the, the things we had come to be used to in the last eight years. Right. Well, you mentioned that a lot of these stories involve ecological collapse. And one that really stands out in that regard for me is The Great Dying by Lydia Millet. Uh, and I wasn't too familiar, familiar with her before reading this story, but I guess she's actually a conservationist. I don't know if you guys know her at all. or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Conservationist. I think she's been nominated for two Pulitzers. And, and and since editing her, I've of course read her book, and I've forced her latest on on Maria, which I don't think she's read it yet. Um, Not yet. But, it's on it's on my stack. Uh, and and she's tremendous. I mean, I, I feel like I mean that that was a Caitlin uh, connection. I think she may know Lydia Millet, uh, and I inherited that piece when Caitlin left. Uh, and working with her was was really wonderful. She, she that piece came in. It was a it was a chapter from her only young adult book, uh, Pills and Starships. And it was, I think it's the first chapter and it was 8,000 words or something, which was far too long for anything we had planned. But, you know, in a matter of two days or something, we had cut it down from 8,000 words to the version that ran on wire.com, which is, I think around 3,000, maybe even less. Um, and we were both so happy with, with how it came out because it really focused it into a, something that could stand alone as, as a short story as opposed to an excerpt from, from a longer book. Right, and so the, the premise here is that it's, it's sort of like Soylent Green a little bit where the future uh, ecology is so devastated that people are just choosing to check themselves into voluntary suicide centers. Right. This was making me think of actually, you know, when my parents were in college, they went to see a double feature of Soylent Green and Silent Running, and they were so uh, traumatized by it that they came home and joined the Sierra Club and Planned Parenthood that night. <laughs> That's wonderful. But so I don't know. Well, if David, story... I'd be interested. Did you think that the, the piece worked as a sort of standalone uh, story? Do you want to read the book? Uh, what was your sort of impression reading reading it? 
Yeah, no, I thought it worked as a standalone story. I mean, I guess I saw that it was part of a book um, in the right. author's note, but I thought it worked just fine as a, you know, sort of a slice of this future world. And there is kind of an arc involved. I don't want to say too much, but there is kind of an arc involving the characters. So uh, I thought it worked, yeah, as a standalone piece, just fine. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess, are there any other, so, so the ecological collapse, that was one theme, obviously, that jumps out at you from these stories. Were there any other themes, like, in, that were in common among multiple stories that really jumped out at you as you were looking them over? You know, what's interesting is that one of the things we, we struggled with is we only, again, I said, I think I said this before, but we only had so many pages and we had more pieces that we loved that we could fit in the print magazine. But one of the things we had to do was realize that we actually had two pieces about clones. We had two pieces. We had three pieces about climate change. Set on islands. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so we started to look at, you know, maybe, and most of our readers come to us online, so we moved some of them. We didn't want to get rid of any, so we moved a couple of those over to online only. Um, but the, so the, the two pieces about clones was an interesting take. Right. And on climate change, it's it was sort of gratifying i suppose in hindsight uh that's three of these writers focused on on global warming and climate change uh only because it's such a suddenly it's even more important of an issue um and i think our our january or rather our february essay uh is on climate change um so it it was uh not surprising and i think fiction in particular will really need to engage with with climate change, and, and I think that's a smart way to to get more people talking about it. We just did for book club uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, and he was talking about how people complain there isn't a lot of good climate fiction, cli-fi, sometimes called, um, but that's not true. And and that I think our our issue sort of reflects that a lot of genre writers, in particular, do want to tackle uh, changing climates as, as themes in their stories. Uh, so the fact that we have three pieces that touch on that to me simply emphasizes the fact that it's a really important time uh in genre fiction to to address these issues yeah well maria uh, mentioned the clone stories and i really thought the l7 gene uh was a really interesting premise could you talk about that sure i I edited that and was a really big champion for that piece um the the premise alone was was enough i think to, to sell it at least to me uh you essentially the main character, Sam, uh, arrives home for Thanksgiving and has realized she's trans, realized that, realizes that her mother has cloned her but removed the gene um, in the clone that makes you trans. So she now has a brother uh, who's teenage, uh, and she's, I, I suppose, in her, in her 20s. Uh, and just how do you deal with the fact that mom has cloned you but, but made you the version of yourself that you don't feel that you are. Uh, so it was Gene's premise was, was so smart. And, uh, and that, then the story sort of proceeds from there. I mean, did you talk to the author at all about where the story came from or what she was uh, going for or anything like that? Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the first conversation was, was really interesting for that reason. Uh, and what I also found interesting was that she had written this story a couple of years ago, I, I want to say, and struggled to place it anywhere. And, and, she was explaining to me that not a lot of places she felt understood it or got what she was trying to do. And there's a lot of layers to the story. And Maria and I 
spent a lot of time thinking about it and, and, and working with her on editing it because we really wanted it to be clear what she was going for, but at the same time preserve some of the ambiguity um, in those family dynamics. Uh, and, and there's a question in the end, I don't think this is spoiling too much, um, about what the what Sam, the, the main character, does to the brother. Um, I'm trying to be intentionally vague. Uh, and it's it's sort of up to the reader to decide, but I, I Jean and I had talked through it uh, and she had very clear ideas for what actually happens after the story ends. Um, but we didn't want it to be so obvious that there was only one interpretation. So a lot of the story is about deciding for yourself who's right. Is it Sam? Is Sam right to be angry at her mom? Is her mom right uh, for doing this to Sam? And who? what's love? And what are these mother-daughter uh, relationships supposed to mean? Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of intentional ambiguity built into the piece, which which made it both a challenge and a pleasure to, to work on. Well, and it seems like the broader, the, the technology of being able to dictate the gender or sexual identity of your children is probably something that is going to happen um, within a couple mm-hmm. of decades, right? Did you guys talk at all about how concerned you are about this actually happening? Oh, yeah. I mean, part of the theme of the piece is that once you figure out one thing, um, that opens up this terrible slippery slope for everything else. Um, so, you know, I think there may be a line or it's, it's a bit vague. It's supposed to be, um, that the mom suggests that, you know, now that she's isolated this so-called L7 gene, you could potentially isolate any other gene for skin color or for really anything else. Um, and, uh, how that will be a reality at some point and we'll have to face the consequences of that. Uh, but, Gene and I agree that any kind of manipulation at this genetic level is sort of monstrous, uh, but we don't want to get too preachy or heavy-handed in the story that those themes are supposed to come out naturally. You know, I would let me add something to that. It, it was really interesting working with Jason, and I didn't work directly with Gene, but Jason did. But just on that piece, because some of the things I would push on, Gene was very clear about her perspective, and that that perspective was very important. And I. And I really appreciated that. And I think, um, you know, as a trans woman, that was incredibly valuable. And it comes out in the piece nicely. She was, she actually had, you know, very clear moments of, of wanting something to be phrased a very specific way because of her own experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, down to really came down, down to individual word choices that we might push back on because it seemed odd or unclear. But Jean would very adamantly say, say and I, really respected her for pushing back that this is trying to do something very particular to my experience. Um, and so, you know, that's why I phrase it this way. Or that's why you're supposed to be confused. You're supposed to feel the kind of ambiguity or, or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm really proud that we, we have the piece. Uh, yeah, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. Well, so Maria, so Jason has mentioned working closely with a couple of these authors. Are there any authors that you worked particularly closely with the stick out? You know, the only piece that I worked directly with the author every, oh no, there was two, there were two. I took over the James S.A. Corey um, piece from, from Rob because he was too busy, but was Edgar Carrot's piece, which is just, it's called A. Um, and that piece, again, it's one of these stories that I really don't want to give away the ending because the ending is such a, um, I don't know, a surprise, a twist, but Edgar Carrot is an Israeli. He does, um, you know, a lot of fiction. You might have heard him on This American Life a number of times. And it was so interesting and fun to work with him because he too was incredibly specific about where he wanted his words to go. And he was also working through a translator, Sandra Silverstone. 
um, because um, English is not his his first or preferred language. Um, but it, you know, so that piece is about this seemingly orphanage where these these children are left because they have this um, supposed disease that makes them grow ten times faster than than humans, and so they become. Um, you know, essentially fully adults probably in about 10 years, but then they die. And, uh, and it, un- and it unravels from there. And it too has so many themes that are tied through it and some obscurity that you really understand at the end of the piece, but it doesn't throw you as a reader on the way. Uh, it's been fun to, to, to work through these pieces and have other other editors at Wired read them at times just for proofreading and have them say which ones were their favorites. One of our editors in New York, just the carrot piece was absolutely his favorite. Um, so I think that was our first green light too. Sorry to interrupt. Um, it's hard. It's actually, a, no, it's okay. It's a little hard to talk about because I really would love to talk about the ending and I don't want to give it away, but talking about the ending kind of lets me unfold the whole story. Um, because the ending has kind of a double backflip twist on it. Uh, and actually, a version of the story Edgar started with had the ending going the opposite way that it goes now. Um, which, which, <laughs> if, if I knew all the listeners had read the piece, then we could all talk about, but I can't do it well, yet. Well, no, that's, that was super interesting to me because I had read Caitlin, I, like I said, I think Caitlin Greenlit this piece and Matt Gallagher's piece first. Uh, so those were the, the first two stories that we knew we would run. Um, and I had read Ecker's treatment for the story. So he'd only had kind of a, a plot summary and outline at that point. Uh, and the ending was, was sort of the exact opposite as what it ended up being. Um, and I wasn't involved in the editing. Uh, and maybe he some way at some, you know, at some point during the writing process realized the ending had to be different, but, uh, he did. But that was really he fascinating. Did. And actually that is what happened. I sent him back some notes on the first draft and the, the only notes were really, about the um, omniscient narrator and and kind of switch that happens in the piece and and really then just some other very small stuff because I think because of translation and I wanted to be sure um, that the that his meaning was coming through but I had a question for him on the ending and he came back and went the entirely other way and said you know I think your questions were really thoughtful and you made me you know think but the ending has to be and again 180 degrees this is how it has to go and um, and so. <laughs> Uh, well, so I suppose that's an instance where the editing did really fundamentally change uh, part of the story. Well, I actually think it was mostly him and not me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that I was just asking some questions and he then said, well, I, he has realized, you know, right. a, a sort of aside from my questions, he has realized that the piece only works if this thing happens. See, have you guys ever heard Edgar Carrot's story about how he got started writing? Oh, no, I need to listen. No, me neither. Oh, it's a great story. Yeah, so I, I saw him at an event years ago, and I heard him tell this story. But so, because uh, especially when he started, all his stories were very, very short. I mean, like two pages long. And so he was explaining why he wrote such short stories. And it was because he was drafted into the Israeli military. You know, everyone has to do, do like right. compulsory service. And since he was such a poor soldier, they found the most like easy unuseful job for him which was he had to sit in the basement with this big supercomputer and there was a phone and if the computer stopped running he was supposed to call someone and that was his whole <laughs> job and so he's just sitting there for and, and his shift was from like uh midnight to 6 a.m or something like that 
And so he was just sitting there at this computer and he's like, I wonder if like, there's any, I could do anything on this computer. He's like, well, I can like type, you know, I can type, do, do word processing. So he, he said, maybe I'll write a story. And it had to be a story that he could finish before 6 a.m., you know, so it had to be pretty short. And so he wrote this story and uh, he printed it out. And he's like, I think this is pretty good. He's like, I want to show this story to somebody, but who's around at 6 a.m. that I can show my story to? So he called up his brother and his brother says, well, you know, I'm, I'm about to take my dog out for a walk. So, um, you know, come over and I'll read the story while we walk my dog. And so Edgar's like, all right. So he goes over and he gives the story to his brother and they go and walk the dog. And his brother reads the story. And he says, um, could you print out another copy of this? And Edgar is uh, really happy. He's like, yeah, yeah, of course, I, of course I could. And the brother says, great. And he uses his story to pick up the dog poop. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's how he got started as a writer. <laughs> oh, no. That is a wonderful story. I think Caitlin was an early champion of Edgar Carrot's. Um, oh, yeah. Published him at the Paris Review. Um, so she's, she's known him for, for many years. Uh, so she was, or he was definitely one of the first people she reached out to. And, he submitted two pieces uh, for consideration, actually, and and the other one ended up running in in BuzzFeed. I want to say um, it was sort of tied to Pokemon Go uh, in that moment, and we thought a the, the piece that ran in, in in Wired was the better fit for for what we were trying to do. But um, he's fabulous. Well, so so Maria, you mentioned you also worked on the James S. A. Corey story. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, that. Um that piece, the more I read it, and again, our our notes back to the authors were just little, actually tightening. Um, those those guys have this beautiful prose. Um, they're very, I don't want to use earnest in a bad way, earnest in a really lovely way. Um, and they, they spin out scene and you really know where you're, like you're standing on the street with the protagonist. Um and so most of our notes to them was were about keeping keeping the reader clear that we're now standing on the street instead of in the room that we were just in stuff like that um or that we've moved down the street and you know now we're sitting with a different character and uh and you know it was really interesting to see the pushback again on a couple of things where they were I have this great document back from them where it says Stat for author voice in, in a few moments, <laughs> which, um, which was really, you know, fun and funny. And I thought, right, that's their voice. It's not my voice. Maybe I, you know, overstepped in a couple of spots. Again, it was all pretty small stuff. Um, but you know, when you think it, it, there was this moment a couple months back where people started talking about the idea of basic income again. And, you know, the ideas and the fights and the, arguments for and against basic income, usually for, I think kind of pop up every 10 years or so. And we were in another one of those moments somewhere in the middle of this process. And this piece comes in that really is spinning out something I don't think a lot of people had thought about, which is, you know, when you have everything, what are you left longing for? What are you left that you need? And it tends to, you know, they, they spin this story that you come to at the end and you think, right, you're like, we still need un human understanding and thought and connection and people to understand, um, you know, deep emotion and, and deep values. And the more I read that story, the more I kind of fell in love with it. Does, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, this idea of the basic income is really underexplored in science fiction. I mean, there's a lot of futures like Star Trek or something where we're way past 
um, scarcity entirely. But it seems like I haven't read too many stories where it's just the very near future and they've just implemented this basic income and what are the immediate short-term implications of that. So it was really interesting for me to see the story for that reason. Yeah. And to your point, you know, it was one of those pieces that just, it didn't, it, it kind of came out of some wonderful left field. It didn't take on technology. It didn't take on, you know, the the ever-connected world. It it just, right, pulled this thought out of out of conversation and, and ran with it. And I, I love thinking about how an author's mind does that, you know, just probably comes up with a sentence or a what if, and then just gets to start spinning out and spinning out that thread. That's how I felt about that piece. Well, there are a lot of stories in this issue, though, that deal with technology and particularly technology that reads your mind or that is paying a lot of attention to what you are thinking or what you want is a theme that just shows up in a number of the different stories. Mm hmm. You know, there was a couple of pieces where I would be reading and I know that the story ultimately is um, is heartbreaking or anxiety producing, but they would just make me laugh because they would there would be these moments and lines. And I know the, the author is very skillful at doing that, which it's just a really hard thing to do. Right. But both Charlie Jane Anders and um, Charles Yu's piece both spin out a kind of anxiety around technology and, and the reading of our minds um, in different ways. and. I think that they balance each other really well. Charles Yu, it was fun to have that piece because right as we were producing it, you know, Westworld was all the talk and he's a, he's a top writer there. Um, and I started watching Westworld and then thinking about how, you know, how does his mind go to this other thing, which is like the creation of this technology that can actually literally read our thoughts and, and show it to us on our on our screen before we even kind of have those thoughts um, or as we're having them. And how do we stop that? How do we manage that? And I don't know, it was just, it was kind of fun to put it in context of where Westworld was going and try to figure out if there was any, any threads or, you know, or somebody who's working on a show like Westworld has any time to do something like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because, you know, I've interviewed Charles Yu, and so I know a little bit about his biography, and there appeared to be some autobiographical elements in that story. And so I was wondering how close that is to his inner monologue. And if so, I just want to give him a hug. because. Uh... <laughs> oh, well, you know, I want to ask you about that. What do you think? Because, <laughs> I, you know, you've interviewed him. I, I, That was a piece that Adam Rogers brought in and edited. And, you know, all I did was shepherd it through and point out little bits here and there just to make sure. Um, that we were keeping the readers with us. Uh, but it didn't, that piece barely needed a, ed, any editing at all. I think the only thing we had to do was ask him to cut a couple hundred words to fit it, to fit the page. Um, no, I mean, I mean, my impression is that that's pretty close. I mean, you know, you'd have to ask him, but he's very, very self-effacing. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that, that seemed to fit to <laughs> fit pretty well with how I see his personality. What I loved about the, the that piece too, is it's not, easy reading necessarily and same with Jemison's piece and I like that we got a few kind of harder science fiction short stories in, into the magazine so back to the, what we were talking about earlier the range of themes and lengths and tones um, I'm, I'm just very proud of, of, of the range because some pieces are more literary some pieces are, are really based in genre and, um, and the you and the Jemison in particular felt to me like kind of core wired stories and that they were a bit harder, they reward multiple reads and, and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, there was sort of a variety in terms of the storytelling techniques, too, because you mentioned the Jemison story is sort of on these transcripts of these communiques. And then there's the story of the current entertainment, which is written as a kind of theater review from the future. Yeah. I don't know. What's the story behind behind that one? So that's another piece that came in from Adam Rogers, um, uh, commissioned that piece. And... I think most readers of other magazines will notice that that piece is essentially um, directly taking on the New Yorker and Anthony Lane and the Anthony Lane style of um, of film review, which you know is so unique and so delightful. And I think you know Adam and the author just decided, let's what's that look like in seventy five years or fifty years? Um, and then I actually think that. That they decided together. I think Adam may have thrown out the idea of making this actually a Condé Nast bot in the end. If you see the little note at the very end, that it turns out that the author is just a self, it's just a self-generated I love that review. So I know, <laughs> which was a fun twist because here we are, um, you know, actually in its conception, taking on a real person who does like really thoughtful work and has this very specific voice, and then it turns out in the end. Um, that we have just worked ourselves out of a job <laughs> on all all aspects of the uh, you know of the future, right? And so, what's going on in the story? If I if I got it all right, is that some sort of performance artist has robbed a bank wearing something that's recording his memories, <laughs> <laughs> and so then uh, this guy is reviewing that recording as a you know full sensory experience in an extraordinarily pompous uh, you know condescending <laughs> way. And comparing it to all these classic uh, works of art and saying that this this is just doesn't measure up. So and it's just very funny in that way. It's very funny. I mean, I I think it's that um, right in the future that the, this is the future of of film, right? That it's a full three sixty degree experience in which you can see their thoughts, read their thoughts, also see you're sort of with the bank robber. Um, in my imagination, you're somehow just immersed in that film as if it's suddenly i don't know you're kind of a viewing character of a film and you know that that's what our entertainment will look like in the future and then just how terrible the uh the outcomes can be when people try to apply it to film genre um that that piece is very funny i mean it's it is one of those pieces you might have to read once or twice which i actually never like to ask somebody to do because but it's more that you get more out of it when you read it a couple of times and it becomes funnier and funnier. I think I've always thought the, the mark of a good short story was one that rewards multiple <laughs> readings. And that's certainly true of this issue. But a, an interesting fact about the, um, about that story. Um, I think we were originally going to put Anthony Lane's name on, on the story um, to really hit home the fact that this was sort of satirizing him, but a couple of us felt, and I hope Glenn David Gold doesn't mind my saying this, that the, the style wasn't quite Anthony Laneian. Um, he's such a singular, inimitable stylist, uh, that this didn't seem to be the, an exact replica of, of Anthony Lane's style. But then you get to the end and you see that it's a bot. And so I sort of like this secondary layer. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it that, you know, you can't in the end perfectly replicate a, a human. This is really just a bot trying to be a, uh, a reviewer in some way. So that's sort of the reading I took away after a couple of times. 
Well, I mean, you mentioned that a couple of these stories were brought in by Adam Rogers, and there's kind of an interesting note on the story first from him about how this story came about. Could you talk about that? Yes, that's one of my favorite moments um, in this whole issue. So Adam, years ago, when his son was, was about five, he told his son that we had left the Curiosity rover behind on Mars, that it was, you know, an unmanned um, craft. And his son was so upset because he was just at that age where he could understand enough, but not understand that that didn't, that didn't mean we left, you know, a, a human being behind. And he, you know, I don't know, it might've hit him at a moment where it just tugged at his heart somehow. And his son was just distraught. So Adam took to Twitter and asked people, you know, with a distraught son, what, what do I do? What do I tell him? And Adam has a lot of, um, writer friends and fiction writer friends. And John Rogers just said, wait, hang on a second, I'll get back to you. And within, I don't know how much time, but it really wasn't that much time. He wrote him this piece. And this piece, and I, I think Adam's probably be annoyed that I'm telling this much of the story, but the piece was basically um, a bit of an homage to, to, you know, to answer and to help his son understand. And to me, it's it's so sweet because originally in the first draft, the initial, the first initial of the um, main character was the same initial as Adam's son, and you know, it, it basically is saying like, "You're the hero who's going to go get him back." Um, and so when when I knew that and could read that into the story, and, and a couple of us really pushed to have that editor's note in there so that the readers would see that there was multiple layers um, going on here. Pretty sure, didn't it come just as an email or something? It wasn't even yeah. like typed up in a Word doc. It was literally just an email. I think email. so. I think he just emailed him the story a few days, you know, a day, a few hours, a day or so right. later. Maria was talking about earlier that the, the issue felt pretty dystopian, um, and we were kind of worried about that. Um, and so we wanted to inject a bit of optimism into the mix. Um, so we were considering a couple of optimistic pieces sort of later in the game, and that was one of them. And I think everybody read it and sort of knew right away that that had to be in the issue because it was so touching. And I think I teared up reading it. And it was, like I said, it just came in as an email that I was probably reading on my phone on the way home from work as we're all stressed trying to, you know, get another piece in the magazine that sort of rounds out the mix and lifts yeah. up the mood a bit. And actually the way that worked was that I, we were talking about this, like we were talking about how we have a lot of dark stories and Adam said, I think Rob had talked to Adam and I was talking to Adam and Adam said, well, I might have something. And he just kind of forwarded this email along to a handful of us. And everybody was just like, okay, done. Uh, you know, that's lovely. And it's so great. It, and it speaks to like, I mean, we all have this tendency to anthropomorphize these space rovers, um, curiosity, opportunity, any of these things we send into space. Yeah. We, we just love pretending they're humans. And of course they tweet things. Uh, and it, so that story, even though it was written years ago, kind of speaks to this, very much a, a contemporary idea that we, we, we send these robots into space and we kind of pretend that they have feelings. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to ask you about you guys about the cover because, so the cover, if you haven't seen it, it depicts these two figures standing in sort of a placid blue universe looking through a dark portal from which sinister red light is flowing forth. Now, am I... Um, reading too much into it to read any sort of political message into that <laughs> color scheme? Well, interestingly enough, if you look um, at that cover, the light is actually coming from behind 
the women, right? Because their shadows go into the dark portal. Um, it, this it, one of the things about the art that I, th- I mentioned at the beginning that it was so fun and and just great to work with our art department. So David Moretti um, had had produced he he had produced a fiction issue of Wired when he worked for Wired Italia. He's he's this wonderful, rich, uh, deeply thoughtful and um, passionate Italian, uh, our creative director. And he wanted to make this whole issue just feel a bit like a book, like you were holding a book. And so he redesigned the entire structure of the magazine and used, um, used a, a design, a paper design behind each issue that actually grows on itself. And he, they, he and Ellie Fisher, who is, uh, another one of our wonderful designers found these two sisters that create this kind of end paper. And so if you actually, if, if you're flipping through the book, you realize like the end papers behind each story actually build on each other and they're all algorithmically um, built. Uh, so in, in, at the end, they, they were talking to, a, um, you know, a handful of their favorite designers and came up with this cover. Um, and I think it just did work. I mean, when, when we knew Trump was the president, we knew that our future was much more uncertain. Uh, and this cover just, just said it all. I mean, I, I, I don't want to read too much political into it, but it felt, it did feel right. Everyone who I've brought up the issue to has, the first thing they say is the cover is amazing. And it, it really is tremendous. Um, I had a couple other random questions I kind of want to ask you guys about the magazine, but is there anything else? Do you have any just final thoughts, I guess, about this fiction issue or just anything else you didn't get a chance to mention? Um, I, I did want to say that it did feel very, you know, being in the, in most of the time, the nonfiction magazine world and having a, such a big news event like the Trump election happen. I know a lot of people in other magazines who were tearing up their magazines and, um, having to rewrite stories. And it was really an interesting moment to realize that, you know, again, there was a lot of anxiety happening through the year. And I think a lot of our authors have felt that. But it was very interesting to look at what we had and feel like, you know, this is a good, a good moment to give people both a little bit of respite from, um, from this very anxious year, but also to give them uh, just something that's, you know, did this, this great thing that we all love, which is fiction, fiction authors, spinning out ideas. Um, and so I felt really, I felt really happy that we had this in hand to give to our readers. Um, it felt right. It felt right in a very tough new year, news year, no matter what side of the fence you stand on. Uh, Jason, final thoughts? Oh, I think Maria said it beautifully. Um, yeah, I've been at Wired for almost five years, and it's one of the issues I'm, I'm certainly proudest of. And I think Tor uh, reviewed the issue and, and opened by saying something like, in a year that's seen Wired become increasingly literary. Um, and I really liked that for some reason, in part because um, for the website, uh, Peter, the culture editor, and I run the Wired Book Club. And so that started up, I think, back in May, uh, sort of right along the time that Caitlin was dreaming up this issue. Um, and, and some of the authors that were, that we've read for book club, like Nora Jemison, were in the issue. And so I think, like I was saying earlier, it's a, it's, it's an exciting time for, for genre, particularly science fiction, um, tackling 
and fantasy, um, tackling these very relevant contemporary themes. And like Maria said, it was sort of perfect that we had this issue come along at just the time when it felt like we needed it. Um, and so I don't know if that was, if that's just us reading too much into things or, or, or it just really happening the way it was supposed to happen. But, um, I don't know. Yeah. It all sort of came together in the way that only magazines kind of do come together. There was a lot of stress and we had to hold some pieces and put others online and, and really think about the mix and what belonged in the magazine and how they all work together. And I think that what we came up with, uh, really works. So I'm just, yeah, very proud of it. I mean, do you want to say anything else about the Wired Book Club? Because I think that's something our listeners would probably be interested in. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of occurred to us that we didn't have a a really robust coverage of, of science fiction and fantasy, uh, and that's something that I'm very passionate about and and want to write about more. Um, so back in, I said, I guess back in May, uh, Katie, who runs the science vertical, Peter, who runs the culture vertical, we call the, the web sections verticals, really jargony, section is mm-hmm. a better word, um, and, and, and me, who mainly works on the, the print magazine, thought to force us to sort of cover, cover science fiction and fantasy uh, in a more regular way, we should start a Wired Book Club where we, we pick a book um, that's roughly newish, um, come out in the last couple of years, uh, and every week host a little discussion about the, the section that we've read and, and try to incorporate reader feedback and reader comments, um, and at the end of the month talk to the author. Uh, and I don't know how many readers out there are participating in the book club, but we certainly hear from a few of them, especially when we, you know, take off a month and people wonder, where's Wyatt mm-hmm. Book Club? So that's always gratifying. Um, but, um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun and, uh, we've had a lot of interest and I, I don't know. It's, it's nice to engage with writers. Every month we have a, we have a conversation with, with an exciting writer in, in genre. Uh, and it's really, I think, deepened our, our coverage of, of books. Um, and now we, we're start tying in pieces with the magazine, especially next year. We're going to try to do some kind of cross promotional stuff where in the print magazine, we'll do a, maybe an author interview and then that same month read one of their books, uh, for the website. So, you know, it's, it's made us feel more part of, of that world. And like I keep saying, it's a really exciting time for genre, um, for whatever reason. And, uh, I don't know. It's nice to be part of it. And now that we have the fiction issue, I feel like we're, we're, we're firmly in, um, back in in the book world. Can you say what any of the books coming up that you'll be reading are? Oh, sure. We haven't um, officially released the the list, but we do know that we're thinking about Infomocracy, which is Malka Older's book, came out this year, and she has a piece in the fiction issue. Um, And we read Ada Palmer's book this year, Two Like the Lightning, which was my favorite book that we've done for Wired Book Club so far. And we we're potentially going to publish something of hers in the fiction issue. That didn't quite work out. Um, but we love that book so much. And I hear that Infomocracy is very much kind of a companion to that book in that it's about a future run by corporations. Um, so I'm very excited to do that. Um, Nettie Okorafor won the Hugo this year for her novella Binti. So we're thinking of doing that in January. Um, I don't want to say too much because we haven't officially committed to any of these books, but, um, uh, those are some of the ones we're, we're, we're thinking about doing. Um, I can say that, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson and John Scalzi both published big standalone books in March. Uh, so you can probably expect we'll do one or both or uh, of them in the new year. Hmm. I was also just looking at your reviews of absurd self-published ebooks. Uh, 
yes, one of my favorite series. Marie, did you ever know I did that? No. There was this Tumblr called Kindle Cover Disasters um, from a couple of years ago where they, the, the Tumblr was just these, you know, covers that probably people designed on, I don't know, Microsoft Paint or, or Photoshop or something. Um, really atrocious covers, but kind of amazing at the same time for their, for their self-published genre fiction. Um, and it was sort of poking fun at, at these writers, but then I thought, like, maybe we should dignify this. Let's not just make fun of these books. Let's read the books that, that Kindle cover disasters is, is spotlighting. So I started reading, um, some of these stories, these completely self-published, uh, books and tried to review them in a way that wasn't exactly making fun of self-published writers, but sort of celebrating the, the art form, which is very much an art form. Um, so I had a series for a, for a little while, but it was sort of not sustainable because I couldn't every single month read one of these stories. It's uh, not great for the health. <laughs> well, I liked the uh, um, I liked the title. Now that I'm a ghost, I'm gay. Ah, uh, yes, that's and the one I went out on. You, you say like a uh, classic uh, of, of the form, really. Yeah, so I, 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 this is the first paragraph. It says, The most painful event of my life was slowly admitting to myself that I was gay. The second most painful event of my life was probably getting thrown off my bike by a speeding pickup truck on the scenic route around campus into a tree that shattered my skull and killed me. Mm-hmm. And so begins a 11,000-word, <laughs> I think, self-published story about, I think his name is Jason, if I remember incorrectly, which was an odd resonance. Um, he's killed, never really realizing uh, his his homosexuality, uh, and I'm gay as well, if that's relevant. Um, and he, as a ghost, um, comes back. Or maybe he's sleeping with his friend Jason. Point is, there's ghost sex. Um, he realizes he's gay when he becomes a ghost. I highly recommend it to anyone who's who has half an hour. Uh, okay, but it's, so of course, an absurd story at the same time. So the, the, the point of these reviews is to... I mean, the fact that the book is called Now That I'm a Ghost, I'm Gay is... It's, well, you know, do with that what you will. <laughs> and then I just also really wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned that President Obama edited an issue of Wired magazine a couple months ago. I was just curious if there, if you had, what that was like or if you guys were involved with that at all or just if you had any perspective on that. Well, we, um, Jason and I were both involved because we're both editors on the print magazine. We weren't the, the first team, the uh, right. first line of defense. Um that would go to the White House every so often. That would be Scott and Rob and Caitlin and Adam in the beginning, uh, Caitlin Roper and Adam Rogers. Um, and then it, it pared down to a handful of us, uh, working through at, you know, as we would any issue. Um, but with a lot of back and forth with the White House policy office and the, the team of people we were working with there, Rob, Rob actually did a lot of the direct relationship, um, building with them. But, you know, it was a super interesting and wild thing that we did that Scott started. I mean, it was an idea Scott had early on and he just, uh, he, he went after it and he got it. And, um, you know, he had seen a kindred spirit in Obama right when Scott took over the editorship of Wired. Uh, you know, he, he could really recognize a lot of the language that the president would use as far as what the future could hold and that, you know, that, that it is well within our grasp to have a very optimistic future and that those were the ideas the president was very interested in. And that just sit, that's it just sits sort of squarely in uh, what Scott believes and what Wired um, tries to focus on. 
And so to him, it, you know, it, it wasn't ever going to be political. It wasn't going to be about trying to get people elected to office. It was going to be about science and technology and potential. Um, so they went, Scott and Rob went back and forth with the team from the White House on ideas and, uh, people to cover. And then they really, you know, the White House really let us do the editing and the writing work, which was appropriate. Um, what, is there any sort of specific question you have about? Well, well how, I mean, obviously the thing I'm most curious about is who asked him about his favorite science fiction movies and just how that came about. I think Caitlin actually. Yeah. Yeah. She's tremendous. One of the most brilliant magazine editors, certainly that I know. Um, but yeah, she, uh, she spearheaded the, uh, the book recommendations and the, and the movie recommendations. So she was back and forth at his office and on those. Cool. I also thought it was interesting that, I mean, it was reported within the last year or two that Obama was reading, uh, the three body problem on his Christmas break. Right. So I just like having a president who reads science fiction. <laughs> that's very edifying for me. Yeah. I, I actually don't think I knew that. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. And we, of course, did three-body problem for, for book club. It's also really fun for me to learn little things about the president that I didn't know, which was, you know, that he was a big Star Trek fan. And, mm -hmm. and right, that he has this great list of science fiction. It's so funny to me that his favorite movie of the year was The Martian. But not like, <laughs> like he, he said that multiple times. That was the main takeaway from several meetings was that Obama <laughs> freaking loves The Martian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I think appears at least two, maybe three times in that issue. <laughs> All right, so we're pretty much out of time. So are there any other final thoughts you want to mention? I'm sure once I get off the phone, I'll feel like there was about 30 things I wish I had said. Um, <laughs> one other thing that I, I do just kind of want to add is that if people are able to get their hands on the on the actual print issue, there are so many little gifts from the art department like at the very beginning of the magazine they added in these little three panel um self-contained fiction stories to uh, to a number of the pages in the front of the magazine like there's one underneath the editor's letter um by some the author the illustrator's name is Anjud Shrista and then there's um there's another one uh farther into the magazine on the the page of comments um, that again, they're just three panel little graphic illustrations, but they're self-contained fiction stories. And I, I just love that the print issue of this magazine again is so beautiful and is built like a book of short stories, um, with a spine on every single issue and then closes again with this, this, uh, beautiful self-contained story in a piece of art. So if anybody does have a chance to get their hands on the print issue. Uh, it, it, they are, they'll be well rewarded. The flip side of that, of course, is that there are on Wired.com additional stories that we couldn't run in the magazine. Uh, I think it's four extra stories, all of which um, are certainly worth reading. So there's advantages to, to both mediums here. Uh, and to, to add to what Maria was saying, the table of contents I love so much. Uh, the designer did something where taking the themes from all the stories and turning them into these little blobs of, I don't know, you, you'll just have to pick up the print magazine. Yeah, it shows the, all the, all the, all it, it, the table of contents pages show all of the cross themes that work across right. the magazine. So it's an extra little gift to the reader, to the reader who's looking closely.
and the illustrations. I mean, everyone is by a different illustrator, illustrators from all over the world. Um, and they're really exceptional, every single one. And there are these full bleed illustrations. The colors are amazing and they all kind of play into the colors within the text. Uh, so yeah, the, the experience of reading the issue, I hope, is one that's, that's really rewarding. All right. So uh, pick up the print magazine. I think that's a good note to end on. And so we've been speaking with Maria Straczynski and Jason Kay. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Maria Straczynski and Jason Kay for joining us on the show. Special thanks as well to Thomas Mixa, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Dale Baker, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Dale writes, Hi, David. I found Geek's Guide when I went searching for Werner Vinge, been a fan of his for the last 30 years. Now I'm a devoted listener and really appreciate the high-quality interviews and discussion. Please keep up the good work. So big thanks again to Dale Baker for that nice note and for his generous support. And of course, a big thank you again to everyone out there who supported the podcast. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.